I just want to let you know that um, I'm going to be on my best behavior today because my mom is here from Texas, all right? And that means you all have to be really nice to me today, all right? So, so that's good. Actually, uh, Suzanne's, one of Suzanne's Christmas gifts this year is a little getaway for just me and Suzanne going down to Phoenix later on today, and uh, we'll be back on Thursday. But you can pray for us as our way. We're excited just to kind of be kidless for a few days here, and uh, that should be good. Um, but uh, it is uh, an exciting time <clears throat> for a pastor or a preacher or a proclaimer of the Word of God when you come to a text like this, and the applicational points are so crystal clear, and it makes it easy to move into a time of exhortation because you know what the author is saying to the original audience is what the people of God, the people of the church should hear right now, and that's our case with the passage today. Um, and as I was working on this, um, I just... I just so much felt that there was so much that needed to be said in the sermon. And as I was writing, it was getting really, really long. And instead of having a really, really long sermon today, what I decided to do is break this one really long sermon up into two teaching times. Are you okay with that? You're like, yes, all right. And um, so we're going to start the sermon this week, and then we'll move into a time of application of the sermon next week. And I really didn't wrestle with what needs to be preached as much as I wrestled with the idea is if I'm personally ready to hear what the Lord has to say in this text. Am I actually ready to hear this? That's what I wrestled with because the rubber meets the road really quick in James. And we're in chapter 2. And my question is like, am I ready to hear this? And is the congregation ready to hear this? And this text will help us evaluate where we are at in our relationship with the Lord or even if we have one. So this is very serious business as we go through chapter 2 of James' epistle. And so I want us to, from the very beginning of the message time, I want us to picture life as if there are two escalators that we are ascending upwards on, into the sky. You're either on one escalator or you're on the other one. For those that have trusted in the provision of the sacrifice of Christ, we are on an escalator and it's heading up. And there's those that have not trusted in the sacrifice of Christ, and they're on a different escalator. But both are heading upwards, skywards. Both are heading to the same place to face our last enemy. That is the enemy of death. That is, unless God comes soon. Hebrews 9.27 says this, It is appointed for man to die once and then to face judgment. We're on these escalators. We're all on the same track. All of mankind is either on one of these tracks, and we're all ascending. But for those that know Christ, when we get to the top of that escalator, we're actually going to step out onto a cross-shaped platform, and we will sail over that judgment of God that's being poured out on many as we sail off into our eternal joy. But for some of us, maybe in this room, or some of us listening online, that have not trusted in the provision of Christ as the atoning sacrifice for your sin, you are on a different escalator that's heading toward the last enemy death as well. But when you rise over the peak of that ascension, you will fall off into the judgment of the lake of fire, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's not good. 
So everybody that's listening that has ears to hear and online, we're all on one of these two escalators here this morning. And some of us are heading to eternal joy, and some of us are in grave danger. So my question is, which one are you on? And another question is, how do you switch if you're on one that you don't want to be on? So let's look at our passage of Scripture and then ask God for his help and his clarity on our situations today. So let's pray. God, as we make our way through this text, it is, it's, it's sobering. It's, it's, a, it's not written just for shock value, but we see judgment in it. And we want to make sure that we assess our lives correctly by the mirror of your word. God, I pray that your word wouldn't just be something that we have mastery over as far as like we know what the text says, but that your word would have mastery over us, that we would do what it says. So God, I pray that you'd be so kind now as we open up the scriptures to chapter 2 of James to be our instructor. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So open up to James chapter 2, and we're going to get to it in a second. Um, Typically, it's best to work through a passage sequentially where you start at the beginning and you make your way through the end. But I think this is one of those cases where I think it's more advantageous for us to, to look at the conclusion that James comes up with at the end in verses 12 through 13 and then go back to the beginning and work our way backwards through the text. So we're going we're gonna to read it, but we want to see what James comes up with and then start making our way back. Originally, like I said, I was hoping to do this in one message but I've broken it up into two sermons so as to respect all of our time and also to devote a proper amount of time of application of the text next week. Because this, work we're going to, this week we're going to be discovering what the text says, and then next week we're going to work really, really hard to apply it. This passage ends with the idea of judgment. And so this week and next week what I want to do is I want to pretend that all of our lives are on trial before each other and ultimately before God's Word and God Himself. And I don't really need to pretend. They really are being scrutinized, right? And I want to pretend that we're sitting in a courtroom today and next week and we're going to look at this passage of Scripture and what we need to see is we want to notice evidences that must be in our lives of those who claim to have a saving from sin relationship with Christ. And hopefully at the end of this week's message and next week's message, you and I will all have a better understanding whether or not our lives are congruent with and in harmony with the gospel's call to be new creations. And I'm going to primarily look at three different specific evidences and we're going to present them as exhibits A, B, and C. And for some of us in this room, at the end of the message, and next week you'll look at it, you'll look at your life and you'll say, I have it. Thank God I have it. By God's grace, I'm clearly doing these things. These are, these are exhibited in my life. It's happening in my life. And so I want to commend you for that. And then there's some people in the room, by the end of the message, you'll say, I, I don't have any any evidence of that. And for those of you that find yourself in that situation, once again, I'm telling you, you're in grave danger. We're talking about judgment here. We're talking about merciless judgment from an almighty and all-capable of God. So depending on what camp you're in, you'll end up in completely different destinations. So let's read the passage. Look at James chapter 2, verse 1. Let me turn there. 
James chapter 2, verse 1, what we see here is the main idea of the passage is found in verse 1. When James says this, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, partiality is kind of a big word, so let's define it. Partiality is an unfair bias in favor of one thing or one person compared with another. It's the same thing as favoritism. And we're going to talk about the application of this next week, but for right now, let's move on with James as he begins to explain what partiality might look like. This is evidence for partiality in your life, and it looks like verses 2 through 11. He says this, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay special attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? He says this, listen, my beloved brothers. Has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which is promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? Are the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who has said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. And then James is going to, bring a conclusion to the passage that we're going to focus on today. He says this, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. May the Lord add his blessing to those who read and hear and then do this word. So let's talk through the text, okay? The command to show no partiality is given in verse 1. As born-again members of the kingdom of God, we're not to play favorites among ourselves. Verses verses 2 through 10 will show what playing favorites looks like, and then verses 12 through 13 will actually light a fire underneath us telling us why we can't play favorites. So let's start at the back end of the text, and then we'll go our way backwards. Look at James chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. So speak and so act as those are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Look at this text. Look at it in your Bibles or on the screen. What does this mean? What is James saying Verse 12, it says, speak and act. James is going to use a literary device called a merism, 
where there's two contrasting words that are put together to reference something in its entirety. It's like when people say they've, they've searched day and night for something, or they bought that one hook, line, and sinker, or they searched high and low for the lost item. James says here, our speech and our actions and everything in between is going to be judged. He actually puts word and deed together. It's a major theme throughout the book of James. You're going to see it all over the place. It's here, it's there, it's everywhere. All over the book. And what James is going to argue is that all the words that come out of your mouth and all the actions that your body carries out should be fueled by the reality of God's judgment. Whoa. And you think, well, that should light a fire underneath me. But it's a unique fire because, look, it says judgment under the law of liberty. You're like, what is that? What's the law of liberty? The word judged is a present passive participle. That means that judgment is something that's going on now and will continue on into the future without ever stopping. And that's what's being done to us. We are, we are constantly being evaluated and judged. God is evaluating our lives presently and will continue to do so into the future. And his evaluation tool is the law of liberty. And you're like, well, what is that? What is the law of liberty? That sounds rather interesting. And before we talk about the law of liberty, I want to talk about another law that might be more familiar to us. And it's a law that we see referenced in verses 10 through 11. Look at this. For whoever keeps the whole law and fails at one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. What law is James referring to here? It's the Mosaic law. Specifically, it's just two of the ten specific commandments that Moses was given in Exodus chapter 20. God is the lawgiver, and he can decree what he wants, and he says, you know, it'd be a rather good thing if we didn't commit adultery and we didn't kill each other. Reasonable enough, right? We're like, that's probably... Good things to abide by. And some of you say, well, I haven't done either of those, so I'm off the hook. But you've forgotten that Jesus has expounded on these ideas of adultery and murder in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, don't even look with lust upon somebody and don't call people fools. Oops, guilty. But let's not even go there. James is actually going to take it a step further himself, and he's going to ask the question in verses 8 through 9. He says, You know, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So question, have you ever failed to love one of your neighbors as yourself? Ever? Any time of your life? Yeah, Have you ever failed Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, that Jesus was teaching this from? Yeah, because if so, the gavel comes down, the verdict is handed over to the judge, and he says, guess what? All of us lawbreakers. 
and we're being judged, and we, we, we found, we've found it coming up short. And verse 10 says this, look, if you keep the whole law, and you fail and stumble at one point of it, you've become accountable for breaking all of it. So neither of us is more sinful than the other. We're all guilty of all of it in the Mosaic Law. That is not good news. And that's another theme that we see throughout the Scriptures, right? Sinful people are held accountable for their sins. And so James is saying that we're all lawbreakers. We're all accountable to judgment under the Mosaic Law. That is not good news for us. And so I want to paint a picture for you of what it looks like to try to keep up with the requirements of the Mosaic Law as opposed to the Law of Liberty, which we'll get to in a second. You know, it's kind of resolution time in our lives, right? Anybody commit to, like, exercising and eating better? Everybody? Right? No, no. At least some of you, right? All of us maybe at some point probably heard of the concept or been on the concept of a Stairmaster. Do you know what that is? You ever been in the gym and seen that torture device, right? It's called a Stairmaster. And you're like, you know what? That looks good. That, someone's sweating on that thing. It, maybe it helped me out. And so you decide to go for it. You work out five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 30 minutes. And you accomplish your goal. You feel pretty good. You wanted to burn this many calories or work out for this long. And then you step off the machine. But what happens? The stairs just keep going, right? And even though you've accomplished your goal of 30 minutes, there's an endless amount of stairs that you have failed to climb. That's what the Mosaic Law is like. Adherence to the Mosaic Law could never make any of us righteous because we could never ever keep it. And in fact, it was never intended to be fully kept by us. Rather, the Mosaic Law is like a spotlight that exposes our desperate condition and our inadequacy and our desperate need. So here's the question, when is good good enough? Well, good is good enough when it's perfect. And that's not what we are, but praise God, that's what Jesus was. So you read Romans 8.1, I love this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The Mosaic law is like the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. How did He do that? By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit amen i love this what the law could not do and i could never do namely make me righteous through my own actions and law keeping god did He made us righteous by sending His Son to obey the law perfectly, to suffer in our place as a willing substitute, and then after keeping the law perfectly, He gave us His meritorious righteousness. Amen? Amen. And James says, listen, that for those who are in Christ, 
we're no longer being judged by the Mosaic law because the Mosaic law has been accomplished for us. We are being judged by the law of liberty. You're like, well, what's that? I know I failed the Mosaic law, but maybe I'll do better under the law of liberty. And here's another literary device that James uses. It's called a juxtaposition of terms. He puts two concepts together that seem very far apart from each other so that we might look at them, analyze them, back to back, compare and contrast the terms. And James says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged under the law of liberty. A law is something that constrains you, weighs you down. It's a rule, it's an ordinance, it's a teaching, it's a yoke that is placed on you. This is what you need to adhere to. Follow this. And the word liberty is often used to describe those who have been released from a prison or released from a constraint or released from the weight or the rule or the ordinance or the teaching or the yoke. And James puts these two terms together and when he does so, it produces the idea of being judged by the constraint of your freedom. You and I who have trusted in Christ and what He's done for us have been freed to follow Him freely. Our hearts have been set free. They've been liberated by the law of liberty. This is the law of liberty. The Mosaic law has been accomplished for you, so let's go back into the gymnasium for a second. Picture the law of liberty like this. Imagine going back into that same gym, but this time Jesus comes with you as your guest. He gets in on your membership card at the gym, and, he said, and they say to him, look, you guys can stay as long as you want, as long as you're there, person with the membership card. And you don't feel like working out that day, so you just kind of park yourself on a bench, and Jesus walks up to the torture device called the Stairmaster, and he gets on it, and he starts walking. Five minutes, ten minutes, sweat dripping, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, you break for lunch, he keeps going. You get exhausted just watching him work so hard. So you curl up, you take a nap, and he keeps going. You wake up, he's still hard at it. They want to actually close the gym down for the evening, but they allow you to stay while Jesus keeps working out. So they all leave, and you go to sleep, and you wake up the next day, and he's still going. Day after day, week after week, months turn to years, and then years total up to around 33, and suddenly... The Stairmaster starts glowing red hot because the bearings of the Stairmaster just can't take it anymore. And finally the Stairmaster breaks and Jesus simultaneously falls down dead. And what you see is mysterious to you. So you stand up to go observe it a little bit closer. What happened here? And you realize that your belt needs to be cinched up a little bit more because the calorie burn of Jesus has been applied to you. All of a sudden, you're a whole lot stronger. All of a sudden, your clothes fit better. You've been given the benefit of his workout. After all, he got into the gym on your membership card. And Jesus says to us, look, my yoke is easy. My burden, light. Come to me. And in John 8, he says, whom the Son sets free is what? 
free indeed. That's the law of liberty. You've been freed. So James says, you've been freed to speak and act in ways that are fueled by his mercy and his grace. And so James says, why don't you speak and act in light of the fact that you've been given the very righteousness of Christ himself. And all of a sudden it's like, man, I can't believe it. I'm just not following rules. I'm following a Savior who's, there's no condemnation in him. And so that's verse 12. And I want to briefly look at verse 13, and then we're going to assemble a main idea of our passage that we can preach from next week and quickly set aside three exhibits and evidences that must be in our lives if we are actually following Jesus. So look at verse 13 with me. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy, and mercy triumphs over judgment. What this text is saying is that for those in the room who are trying and yet failing to keep up with the endless stairmaster of good works, the merciless judgment of God, even in your best efforts, of God Almighty is coming for you. You can't do it. You can't do it. Your goods will never outweigh your bads. You were rotten sinful at the court. You need a substitute. And God is coming for you. Or maybe you're on the escalator and you're coming to him. And judgment will be, look at it, without mercy. Judgment will be without mercy to those who have shown no mercy. Why? Because showing no mercy to others demonstrates that, that the individual has never himself fully received mercy from God. This is all in the context of, of church dynamics and playing favorites and being merciful and gracious to people. If you don't do that, then God's judgment is coming for you. And so I'm reminded of Matthew 18 and the parable of the unmerciful servant, right? The point of the parable is this, the unmerciful spirit reveals that a heart has not received mercy. What should the debtor have done in that story? Well, he should have forgiven the debt of his debtors. His actions should have been in alignment with what has been offered to him, and since they weren't, he was still of an obligation to pay off his debt, and there's judgment there, right? But it doesn't have to be that way. God's mercy can triumph over that type of judgment Mercy triumphing over judgment is a major theme in the Bible, if you've ever read it. It's the slain animal to cover the shame of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It's the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of the Israelites in Egypt when judgment was coming for them. Judgment was coming for them, but mercy triumphed over it, but only if they followed the commands of God to believe in the sacrifice on their behalf. Mercy triumphing over judgment is the idea of a woman caught in adultery and dragged out before Jesus who asked those who were sinless to throw the first stone and they all walk away. But Jesus, who actually met the one qualification to become a stone thrower, said, neither do I condemn you. It's all over the place. And it could be all over the place in your life too. That's verse 13. 
And so now that we understand that we're no longer on condemnation and have been recipients of a stunningly incredible mercy that has left us totally liberated to live in wonderful harmony with our Maker through our Savior, Jesus Christ, because that's true, our lives should provide extensive evidence of the gospel's life-changing power. And the main idea of this passage that we're going to preach from next week is this. Our lives should provide extensive evidence of the gospel's life-changing power. What evidence? What are you talking about? And this is what we're going to work really hard to apply next week. Exhibit A is this. A life that has been changed by the gospel is more impressed by the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ than the glory of the riches of men. Exhibit P, B is a life that has been changed by the gospel does not show favoritism. And exhibit C is a life that has been changed by the gospel keeps the king's royal law. And so this is what we're going to work hard to apply next week, and it's going to be hard. But may our speech and our actions reflect our love for our Savior, because for some of us in this room, when we reach the top of that escalator, we're going to step out onto a cross-shaped platform into our eternal joy. That's my story, and that's what fuels my good deeds here on out. How about you? What escalator are you on? And you can switch by trusting in the provision of the sacrifice of Christ on your behalf, who kept the righteous requirements of the law that you could never keep. So let's pray, and I'm going to invite the worship team singers to come forward as we conclude our gathering by singing about our living hope, Jesus Christ. But let's bow our heads in prayer as the worship team comes forward. God, it's hard for us to imagine such great mercy that's been given to us. We could never, ever, ever keep up with the Mosaic Law, and there's a great chasm that stood between our ability and your righteous requirements, and we could not keep it. And in our desperation, when the spotlight was pointed at our lives, and we say, man, I don't measure up, we see somebody who accomplished it for us, and his name was Jesus, and we, we cry out to him. And his work was sufficient, and it was finished, and he became our living hope. And as a proper response to that, God, we want to have these evidences exhibited in our lives of being impressed by your glory, of not showing favoritism and keeping your royal law. And we want to flesh all those things out in very practical ways next week. But until then, God, hear our praise and our prayer to you through this song as we declare hallelujah to the one who has set us free, who has loosened the death grip that death and judgment had on us, and you've broken all of our chains. And we want to sing and honor you now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing this final concluding song. Mm-hmm.